Hello, I'm Scott Hamilton and welcome back to A Dream Achieved, a series from the Natural Boxing Podcast Collection. Looking back on how fighters landed the big one. We are here in Monte Carlo today and I'm delighted to be joined by Tony Bellew. Tony, how are you, sir? I'm okay, chum. What do you want to know? What are we going to talk about? Let's talk about your, your fresh look for a very good cause, first and foremost. Movember. I'm doing Movember, yes. And uh, so far I've got the handlebars. I've got about three or four more days to, to decide which it's going to be. But obviously it can't go no different than the handlebars. If anything else, it's going to go to Freddie Mercury, who is number two. I just thought of four funny people and names that I could have uh, tried to grow this this thing on my face. But... I'm now stuck with the whole Hogan look by the lens, yeah. by the look of it. And it's something you've done the last couple of years as well. Yeah, I've done it. For a great cause. I've lost a couple of people and friends and family to cancer. A couple of friends going through it. And I just thought, you know, I want to raise awareness. Well, people are already aware, but I think they're not aware of things like mental health and, and then cancer and stuff like that. So, and especially prostate cancer. There's so many men afraid to speak, so many men afraid to go to the doctors and, and get checked out uh, we all know what the check is for prostate cancer it's probably it's not pleasant but listen if it saves your life get it done so uh yeah if i can help raise awareness for that and raise money towards towards getting out there then, then so be it definitely go over to tony's social media channel for the link and also to, to check out more about movember the leading charity yeah, that's the most important thing in changing the face of men's mental health as well as prostate cancer testicular cancer suicide prevention as tony says but tony we're here in monte carlo yeah, I believe you was on the yacht party last night. How was it? Uh, party was a strong word, mate. It was a gang of men uh, with a young lady singing for us uh, throughout the night. And we just had a laugh. Just good to relax and chill out. Uh, I've known Frank bloody hell, wow, a long, long time. I've been out there a long, long time. And it's good for us to chill out away from a boxing environment sometimes. That wasn't a party. But the party we're going to talk about today was back on the 29th of May 2016, a night that will forever be associated with yourself, with Everton fans, with the Bellew family and beyond. It was a it was a legendary night. So I'm just going to do a bit of digging around the fight itself, the build-up and some background. Where should we start off? It's obviously no secret you are a huge Everton fan. Yeah. When was your first Everton game? My first ever, I've never, I've been asked this multiple times. People, you could probably get statos or people looking around to probably go back and find it but it was uh, it was at Goodison Park my eldest brother Craig took me and I just remember Peter Beasley scoring two goals and being in the Gladys Street with my eldest brother and that was all I can remember really going nuts I must be about nine or ten and uh, that's the first time I went so that was a couple of years after Everton's success in the mid to late 80s wasn't it when yeah they've won the league title twice in 85 85 yeah well, that's the great team 85 uh, then was it 80 87 88 87 88 and then, yeah, we haven't won one since then. But, I mean, I wish I could have seen the team in 85. I'm always told by all Evertonians who are a little slightly bit older than me. We were just unbelievable. You know, we, we, we'd have dominated. We'd have been out there in Europe right at it. Uh, but things happen and things change. And, you know, we're, we're struggling at the moment. The different, it's a different era. It's a different time than what it was in the 80s. I mean, you see them great teams. Your Peter Reid, your Derek Mountfield, your Graeme Sharps, your Sheedy's. Ratcliffe's or you know these names they just roll off his tongue and the, the legends of football the Neville Salto one of the greatest keepers of all time just you know, I wish I could have witnessed that but listen it is what it is I was cho- I was chosen I didn't choose I was chosen so you're special as an Evertonian the team might have changed but the ground maybe is one of the last of the the, the old school if you like yes. which is obviously going to be coming to an end and we'll touch on that later on Going back to your first game, Beardsley getting the two goals. Can you remember going in there and just sort of seeing a wave of blue and just being taken back? Yeah, I just remember 
fellas, you know, it's mad, drinking, smoking, singing, screaming, shouting, dancing, arguing, swearing, a, a ride of emotion. That's the best way of explaining going into the, the Gladys Street end of Ever Football Club. And then I had my season tickets there in the Gladys Street, uh, roll KK147 over the years, and which is great times, mate. We had, I just had fantastic times. Me and my eldest brother, my dad's a cop out a Liverpool fan, and my eldest brother was a blue. So you obviously, you know, you follow your brother. Uh, I was I was a cheeky little kid of the family. You don't want to rebel against your father. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was ever for me all the way. But Goodison Park was just, it was a special place to me. Throughout my childhood, you know, you're going there all the time. Every other Saturday you're there. And it was just amazing, mate. It really, really was. We were just such passionate fans, brilliant. And it's mad me, most of me adult life has been spent in and around Goodison Park. It's crazy to think that. And then ultimately, you know, we, we all know the dreams I had was being a player for Everton Football Club, but the truth and fact of the matter is I was cracked. I was just going to ask you, that's going to be my very next question. <laughs> yeah, I can listen, I can play football to a certain degree. Uh, I can strike a ball both feet. I know where the net is, but uh, when it comes to playing for Everton Football Club, I mean, Jesus Christ, I, I was barely good enough for Edge's first team, never mind <laughs> Everton Football Club. But we all have dreams, and, and I was, I've always been a dreamer. I'm someone who played that, you know what, I played at a decent level in football. And uh, I played with some really good players. You know, my best mate had the whole career in football in Neil Dance. Uh, he's been at multiple clubs. And yeah, we'll play with now when we get a chance, we'll play seven aside together. Uh, and we have a great time. But football's football, mate. It, it's 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 unlike, it's nothing even, I can't even compare it or compete to this amazing sport that we're involved in here. Well, unfortunately, a career in football didn't, didn't uh, come to fruition for yourself, but obviously a boxing career did explode. I think it kind of gets overlooked, actually, when you look back at your amateur career excelled at heavyweight. Yeah. That's something that I think is overlooked. Is that fair to say? Uh, I don't or maybe you've forgotten about. No, yeah, a little bit. But, I mean, you've got to look at it. People say heavyweight and automatically start thinking of the likes of monster, massive men. But heavyweight... So 91, and, yeah, 91 yeah. kilos. So heavyweight and amateur boxing terms, there's heavyweight and there's super heavyweight. Yeah. So David Price was always the super heavyweight and I was always the heavyweight. And... At 91 kilos, I, I was formidable, to be honest. I was strong. I was a three-time ABA champion. I was a, I was really good. But I never had to struggle to make 91 as a, as a youngster. It, it was quite easy, really. I'd walk around at the weight, and I didn't really go much over. Uh, but then as you mature, as you know, that was a very late developer. The way I, you know, I think I'm still waiting to develop now, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but amateur boxing was really never the one for me. I always knew my game was the professional game. I, I never, ever... At the time when I was an amateur, it was 4-2s, and we were scoring points. Uh, I was in my three ABA finals. I've, I've knocked out two of them. Uh, one of them I knocked out for about five minutes, stone cold. John Lewis Dickinson, which has gone viral in recent years. Yeah, <laughs> I've never I've never seen anyone do it since before or since. You know, leave someone rendered them unconscious in an ABA final. Uh, and he was a really good fighter. John, he just got involved too soon. Did your amateur career finish up with thirty-two knockouts? Am I right by saying that? From uh, I had forty-seven fights, forty wins. Was it forty wins, seven defeats, and yeah, thirty-two KOs? That is extremely high. It's crazy. Yeah. It's mad when I look back at it. I mean, they're not all about nasty care, the stoppages. Are yeah. and, and I would say the vast majority are mercy stoppages. So I'd say that 15, 15 to 20 of the mercy stoppages. I've, got, I've still got the fa- the few, the, the knockouts that stick with me. The novice under 10 final, I knocked them clean out in six seconds. Wow. So I think that's still a record to this day. Mick McAllister, the boxing meal, boxing coach, a brilliant coach, a lovely man. He has the video footage of it. So, yeah, six seconds came out from the one, two, missed, stepped back into another one, two, left hook followed, and he was asleep flat on his face. The referee didn't count because he hit the floor so hard. Wow. Left the on his face. Yeah, it was, a, it was an unbelievable day. 
you know, I, I emphasise it so much to kids now. Get an amateur pedigree, go through the amateur boxing ranks. Uh, get that ground in. Yeah, win an ABA title. It's invaluable, the experience that you get. It really is because, believe you me, it will come back to haunt you. If your plan and goal is ultimately to be a boxing world champion, you will call upon that experience at some point, and I did. We're going to jump forward a couple of years now. So you've turned over, you've had three, three and a half years of grounding in the professional game. Like you say, the difference between the two is evident. You move to 12, 13, 14 and 0. You fight the likes of Adjusaf from memory. Yes. And Big Oville as well, uh, yeah. twice. And then we're going to jump into the, the first fight with, um, I'm trying to think what that name you called him at the time, kind of rat. That's probably one of a few, to be fair. <laughs> um, which didn't go your way on no. relatively short notice. Yeah. Uh, I mean... It's my, see, everyone relates that fight to being on short notice. I'd had a decent camp behind me for that fight. It was the one that it fell through and I got the, the three days notice. But ultimately, I still think I won. And I'll always stick with that. I mean, I genuinely do believe I've only ever lost to two people in my life. And both of them were Ring Magazine champions in, in Adonis Stevenson and Alexander Usyk. Uh, but I have ended lost against Nathan So I've defeated everyone I've ever faced apart from you know, them two ring magazine champions and, and they were better than me. I've got no problem with saying that. Uh, I'd say there was reasons behind the Adonis Stevenson one, but he's still better than me. You know, he proved on the night. But with the Alexander Usyk one, I mean, with its weight, 100% with Adonis Stevenson, I'm sorry to say it. And I don't make excuses. No, I think, to be fair, you, Everyone, it was evident you could yeah, see it as well. I was dead yeah. at the weight. I was a walking skeleton. But against Usyk, I've just lost to the better man. He's better than me. And I can accept that because he's so good. But I had to test myself before I retired again to see how good I really was because when I went to cruiserweight, I felt unbeatable. So let's go from the best you felt to the worst you might have felt in that Stevenson fight, which yeah. was two years after Cleverly, I think. You had a draw with Chilember in between, a couple of wins yeah. either side. Yeah. Just maybe for someone who's a, you know, they say a casual boxing fan who yeah. doesn't necessarily understand the science of weight and, and things like that. Yeah. What negative effects did that weight have on your body? Presumably it was resistance, movement. Oh, listen, just. So I would walk around uh, anywhere between 15 and a half stone and I would have to get down to 12 and a half stone. Uh, and for the first month of camp, so I would, when I was making light heavyweights, I would be in camp for 16 weeks, not 12, but the first four wouldn't be focused on boxing. It would be focused on, on getting the weight down. In them first four weeks, I would lose about a stone. So I would then be at anywhere probably at about 14 and a half stone from 15 and a half stone. And, and I would start feeling like to getting better, but my body would become accustomed to training. Then I would head into boxing camp with 12 weeks to go. I, by losing the weight, I would be watching what I eat in them first, first four weeks of camp. Uh, I would be doing circuits Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays, uh, some light shadow boxing, just getting myself back into the groove of things. When it hits to the 12-week camps, that's when the dieting gets really strict. That's when the boxing starts and the sparring starts. And bit by bit, I would just break it down. I, I would try and aim for £2 a week every week. But some weeks it, it would I would lose four pound, five pounds, some weeks I would lose one pound, some weeks I wouldn't lose any weight. So it just varies to what how your body wants to give it up. But I would be constantly in a calorie deficit. So, you know, the average human, uh, I think man is supposed to have two thousand five hundred calories yep. a day. I would never ever consume two thousand five hundred calories a day, but I would be burning five thousand calories a day through training. I'm not as talented athletically as all of the other fighters. But I've got a better boxing brain than most of them. Well, I'm not don't want to be together, but I've got a better boxing brain than all of them. They don't see the things that I used to see. I'd say the only boxing brain I've come across that's better than mine was Usyk's. And I'm not sure it was his boxing brain, it was just his movements and what he could actually do. But they don't study the boxing the way I did. So I would figure the game plan to beat people. And, and it worked nearly every single time. Uh, so that's what I would focus on when I was in the gym in the boxing hours. 
don't get me wrong, there would be hard work put in there, whether it was circuits, whether it was drilling on pad work, bag work, everything would be centralised towards that goal of what I've got to do on that night and I would know exactly the game plan and how I've got to follow it. It's frightening because when I look back when I was in camp making light heavyweight, every time I would spew, it was just bile, it was acid coming out of it. It was nothing, there, nothing, was, there. there was yeah. nothing there to bring up and I would just constantly spew and spew. So you've gone from a very stringent schedule, a yeah. lot heavyweight, after the Stevenson fight, which was November 2013, you moved up to Cruiserweight yeah. for your first fight in March 2014. So only three and a bit months yeah. after that. How did your training and diet differ in that period? So basically, when I jumped up in weight, I mean, listen, I was 16 stone by Christmas after fighting Stevenson. Uh, so I was then coming back into camp and I knew I, fighting this weight it was not going to be a struggle getting down to, but I still had to diet. I still had to eat, you know, I couldn't eat what I wanted. Yeah. It, it wasn't going to be a it wasn't going to be a massive struggle. There was going to be no hot bats like before Stevenson to, to try and drag the last four pound off or five pound off. There was going to be no running for hours out every morning. So me me training differed. Uh, I'd, I'd only get up three times a week now and run a half five in the morning, and me running then changed the pattern of it. I stopped running to lose weight. I started running to get more explosive, to be faster, to be sharper. Uh, fart left running started getting put in place uh, hill sprints started getting put in place it was not that long plod with the sweaters on well things changed differently uh, I was then allowed to start working on my strength and conditioning properly strength and conditioning when I was making light every it was based more around giving me lean I could not build I could not lift any heavy weights I mean listen I used to struggle to bench really struggle to bench at 90 to 100 kilos and I've never been strong with things like that. But then I had other parts of me that were really strong. So my legs and my me, me foundations were really strong. I could squat stupidly. I had the, the, the strongest calf. Like I remember on the GB squad, I had the strongest calves on the tests. Because I could just do mad things with my calves. And probably from years of skipping and practicing. But I'd just done things differently. And as I said, once I was at Cruiserweight, I was able to build. And I became a stronger fighter. I became a more complete fighter. And then by linking up with Dave Caldwell who was the best professional trainer I ever came across. Uh, and, and listen, people will think, oh, where have you actually been to, to say that? I was spent some time in Manchester. Uh, I went back to my amateur boxing in Rotunda, which was a brilliant decision because it got me back to basics, got me where I needed to be. We nearly won a world title there. You know, we should have won a world title, to be totally honest. Uh, when I fought Cleverly in that first fight, we should have been crowned then. But everything happens for a reason. If I would have won that fight, that contract would have been in place and I would have been fucked if I'm being totally honest because I was just getting mad but it didn't and, it, and like I said everything happens for a reason it didn't work out I left Rotunda after I'd spent my time there after the Stevenson fight because I needed to move on I needed to do different things I wanted to take my coach with me with McAllister because he was a brilliant coach and I wanted him to work with Dave Calder I wanted him to work together alongside each other and I thought they could have complimented each other if I'm being totally honest but Mick didn't want to do that uh, so I went to Dave and linking up with Dave was the best move I ever made in my professional career. I think one attribute from the outside looking in that maybe Dave complimented your game with, and you mentioned your feet and your legs, your footwork in particular seemed to really come on at that stage of your career. Is that something that you worked on especially, or was it just the way Dave... Dave always wanted me to step. He didn't want me to waste any... He hated me. When I bounced around and sparred, and it would send them nuts. He would stop bouncing, just step, just step, because he wanted me to slow down. And more calculated. Yes. Because yeah. Dave, what Dave done was Dave focused on my defence. I'd never really emphasised much on defence before. And Dave focused on it so much because he always realised the only people that are beating you is people 
who are going to outmaneuver you and wait for you to make a mistake. If your defense is good, you won't make the mistakes. And like I said, he just he added a whole different part to my game. My feet were brilliant. That was down to me. My feet was down to Mick McAllister, Jimmy Albertina, and Rotunda ABC. I've always had good feet. I can move for the big man. And yeah, I just took that to Dave. So Dave hated me doing it, but he didn't take her away from me. Maybe just added bits yeah, elsewhere, which just complimented. That's yeah. exactly what he done. He, he worked with what he had. Yep. He, he realised what I wanted to do, and I was very, very strong-minded. I'm someone who, with a box, when I deal with a boxing coach, I don't want to sound bad, but you, you're going to negotiate with me. You're not going to just, you're not going to just tell me, because I feel like I'm the one taking the punches. I've got to have an impulse as well, but I've also got to respect your opinion. That's why I'm paying you. I employ you to do a job. And I used to do that with Dave. We'd sit and we'd, there's some things we didn't agree on. We'd clash heads loads of times. And I'd walk out with a cob and I would leave the gym on Friday and not see him until Monday. And I would still have a cob on. He'd be like, fucking he's got a cob on again. And <laughs> we were like a bit of a married couple, but I love him. He's a good, good man, Dave Caldwell. And he's a brilliant, brilliant coach. And for any youngsters out there, like I said, go and speak to him and find out because he's, he's, he's a wealth of knowledge. And the way he looks at boxing is fantastic. Listen, I've, and I've got good friends in boxing. I've got close brothers like Joe McAnally. I box with Rotunda. Joe McAnally's the, the best young trainer in the world, in my opinion. Uh, but Dave was just different for me at a different time. And like I said, the proofs in the pudding, what he added to me was was unquestionable. You couldn't you couldn't knock it. Eddie always says to me, you was a different fighter from the cleverly two fight from moving forward. It's like it ticked the book for you. You know what I've done to Masternak, the way I beat him. Uh, and then from going from him to Alunga Macabre, everyone see what Macabre done after he faced me, went on a run, became world champion again himself. Uh, and then the hay fights, and then ultimately it ends with misery with the Usyk fight. But I think I come out of the Usyk fight with so much credit because people I've done things that people just didn't think I could do. Yeah. To a fighter of, of his caliber, like this, listen, that kid's the greatest cruiserweight that's ever lived. There's not a cruiserweight that beats Alexander Usyk in the in the history of the sport. I don't care who you are. You could even bring up Van der Holyfield, in my opinion. Yep. He'd figure him out, and he wouldn't have caught him. You mentioned about having a little uh, Barney with Dave every now and again, and you'd leave him Friday, come back on the Monday. Yeah. From the Monday to the Friday, I believe you were in the Holiday Inn Express, is it, in Rotherham, <laughs> which I remember coming to see you there once or twice in the, yeah. in the last uh, latter stage of your career. It was an air. Uh, it was a hellhole. I, I, I always say that laughing and joking, but, but I, I, I've never said this, and I should have I said it every time I spoke about it. The staff were brilliant. The staff always done the best to help me. It was the best staff going. They've all still there now. I actually went back there this year because I went back and done a, a couple of weeks with Dave in the gym there just to see what was left and what was there. Oh, I didn't know this. Okay, this yeah. Is so I spent a couple of weeks with Dave, uh, and there was there was still bits there, and we were working really hard for a couple of weeks, but then that fell through because Lucas Rosansky's uh, ass fell out. So so yeah, and it's still the same staff, but yeah, the the. Holiday and Express in Rotherham off the M1, mate. It was a, it was an hard place to be. It was tough. I used to live there Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I would come home on Wednesdays. My hands have been that damaged. I could only punch four days a week. Every time I tried to punch five days a week, I would have a problem. So you, you have to... See, as you get older and, and you get heavier and, and you go through the weight classes, you have to pay attention to your body and you've got to be really smart. As I said, I'm not the most intelligent boxer out there. I'm not the, the cleverest. I'm not the best athlete. But I'm I'm smart. I learn from other people's mistakes, uh, and and I learn from the mistakes I've made. And I'm willing to listen to my body, which a lot of fighters are willing to do. They don't listen to the bodies enough. They just want to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until something breaks. And I'm like, why did that break? Well, your body was telling you maybe before it broke. Ninety percent of the time, before you get injured, your body's telling you to stop. 
So it was Brudoff de Santos, I think, with the two first fights. Yeah. Both ended in quite devastating fashion. Yeah, left dogs. The rematch were cleverly. You mentioned a minute ago, Eddie sort of seemed to suggest it was a tickboxing exercise. How much did you want to write that wrong? Uh, oh, mate, he was the only thing on my mind. If I'd have lost that rematch to him, I'd have retired. I felt I beat him the first time. I'd definitely beat him up the second time. I mean, I don't never know what that ref, that judge was judging, but it doesn't surprise me. He never gave me a good good result, to be fair. Uh, yeah, it's just, it is what it is. It, it's boxing at the highest level, if I'm being totally honest. It's just, it is fighting people who have been to the top and being world champions. Uh, and then you'd have the rivalries, the domestic rivalries, and I've been through a few. Uh, me, it started off my first rival with old McKenzie, you know, a in the rematch. I adjust, I adapt. Once again, you know, my tactics work out and, and, and I just completely dominate and win a 12-round point decision. Then we fast forward to the cleverly rematch. Obviously, I get that one past him. The tactics were perfectly put in place. I then use my size and I'm no longer drained. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, a rabbit caught in the headlights at light everywhere too. who's just absolutely exhausted after three rounds. I'm now fully blown cruiserweight and I'm just bullying him. I just roughed him up and pushed him back and just got stuck into him. He just didn't want to know. He knew if he'd have exchanged with me at any point, I'd have put him out. But he just chose, to, in his only time in his career, he chose to jab and move in a fight. <laughs> it was just nuts. Because <laughs> he usually fights people, everyone, head on. Yeah, and I can't knock him for that because he is a brave lad and he can fight when he wants to. But for me, for some unbeknown reason to me, he just chose to run and jab. Yeah, which didn't make for the greatest viewing, um, Yeah, to be tough. honest. But I remember getting a ticket very late for that. It was sold out. I mean, the names on the undercard, AJ, Callum Smith, yeah. uh, George Groves, James DeGale. Yeah. I managed to get a return from James DeGale, but I think he had four tickets on his website on the Thursday. I just got so lucky. But looking back, it was a, quite an epic epic card, to be fair. It was brilliant, mate. It was great. It was the good old days. You mentioned there about adapting. Yeah. So after the Cleverly fight, you had two more wins, and then you booked Masternak for the European title, and yeah. Joshua White, I think, at the Joshua Ozo. White, correct. Masternak maybe wasn't a well-beater, but what he was very good at, he was just good at everything, wasn't he? He, was, yes. he wasn't excellent, but he was very good at everything. Well, he just fought Gregory Jost, and he'd yep. been stopped for the first time in his life on his feet. Uh, I think it was an 11th round stoppage yep. against Gregory Jost, and I'd studied him, I'd watched him. I remember I was on, I was now at the stage in in the ranking bodies of all the world titles, uh, and I was saying, get me a European title fight, and then I'm in the top five of, of the four organisations. And he went, he always knew I had the thing for the WBC. He said, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. And I remember there was about 14 weeks before Joshua White was getting announced and, and he, it was in place and he was like, listen, I've put, I've put a lot of money into it. At this stage now, I'd been given the, I'd finished a movie for Creed. Creed was about to be released in the January or December, I think it was. Yeah, December. Just before, I think, the fight, yeah. Just before it, yeah. So... I've got a fight for you. He said, I'm not going to lie. It's not great money and you're not really going to like it. He went, I've put a lot of money into you. We've invested in you heavily and, and we need to know if you can win a world title. And I, I, went, by the conversation we were having, me and Eddie would speak all the time. You know, he's not as close to the fighters now as he was once was, but he was close to me and we'd speak all the time, every week. You're going to, I'm, I'm, I'm offering you a fight against a guy called Mateus Master. It's not great money and it was certainly fucking wasn't great money. He said, so you put it to the European title fight you want. And I said, why would you possibly want me to fight Mateus Masterek? I said, he's got more wins than I've had fights. And I thought, why do you want me to face him? And he went, because I'm being brutally honest. If you can't be a Mateus Masterek, you're not going to be a world champion. And I got the sentiment that that was coming from his dad more than him. True. I just, I don't know why I think that's his day. 
And, we, and I'll tell you now, it did come from the stab because in the change room he comes to me after it. But, yeah, that's the two of them said to me. So, I said, okay, and I was fuming. I didn't speak to Eddie for all through the camp. Fucking, I was furious because the money was shit, but it wasn't his bill. It was AJ's bill. It was AJ v. White. And I was the chief support in that, in that bill. So, I understood... But I didn't. I understood why the money weren't great because it can't be great because you know the money. The pot, the yeah, the yeah. pot's full. The yeah, pot, the pot's full. So I needed the bout and I need the European title. But and I had to just take less to, to in the end get more. Look at the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. I thought beating him should do exactly what I wanted to do. But I was furious that I had to face him for you. That's a really hard European title fight. So anyway, I goes in with him, and I studied him and I thought, right, okay. I expect you to take me shots, so I expect this to be a twelve-round fight. If 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 I can catch you clean, I should finish it off and put you out. But you know it's very hard to do. After five or six rounds of the fight, I was cruising it. I was winning every single round in the first five or six. Then I just switched off. So then for, I think it was from six to about nine or ten, he won. Yeah, he goes away. Yeah. away. He, come, he comes back in. He'd scratch me both eyeballs as well. In them, mm-hmm. in them next from six to ten, he'd scratch me both eyeballs. So he will. It's mad because when you're fighting, it doesn't hurt as much as when you when you when you stop. Because when you stop, your eyes are just streaming. You've got to close your eyes. I had two patches on my eyes after it, and I was in the fight, and I thought, I remember thinking after ten rounds, I'm pissing this, and Dave slapped me and said to me, "You're not fucking pissing. It's getting close. You've now got to win 10, 11, 12. So I think he might have won ten, but I've won eleven, and then I come off for the twelfth round. Dave says, "I need you to have a big round just to finish it off." And me, he said, "I think you've won." He said, "But I'm telling you, you should just finish on a big round." I went out on the 12th and nearly stopped, stopped him. him. Yeah. yeah. I, me- I remember him trying to chip me up. He was really smart, clever. I hit him with a left hook and his legs completely went. And as he was about to go down, he's grabbed hold of me and then he hooked his leg behind me. If you ever watch it back, he tries to judo. I've never seen that. Okay. Watch it back on the top. He just puts his leg behind mine and tries to hook me and then fall me over. So that really odd fight experience. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you. So it was, a, it was a really, it was a big, big learning fight. I remember being furious after but think I'm, I'm so happy I've done it I've won a year the bridging fight from yeah. European to world which uh, obviously complements your British and Commonwealth titles as well once I've been British and Commonwealth I've always wanted to do it the old fashioned way so once a British Commonwealth European I was adamant I wanted to win a European title before the world title so when I got that it was like box ticked and I was really I was emotional after that fight because it's a childhood dream as a kid yeah. I, I watch boxing I can go back to the really old days when the, the champions were draped in the three belts yep. and I remember in the dressing room Eddie and Barry coming in and I'm going you see what I'm saying so he said now you're ready for a world title <laughs> fight and he promised me Barry come in and said to me I promise you son your next fight's going to be for a world title he said I can't tell you when he said but it will be for a world title we, you, this this win you being European champion will get you that shot you mentioned then about the film yeah how much if at all did that affect any preparation for that fight it was obviously filmed I think uh, forward, eight yeah. nine months before that, yeah, yeah. it was it was filmed in the was it Jan summer? Oh, was it okay? It, so no, sorry, it was filmed in yes, it was filmed in January. I left for Philadelphia. I went over for two weeks after the cleverly fight. I had the cleverly fight, then I went over there for two weeks to to learn the choreography, uh, let it sink into my brain. Then I came home for Christmas and New Year, and then I went back on the fourth or fifth of January, and I stayed there till like something like the fifteenth or sixteenth of March. So you had a good lead time. Oh, yeah. Full, a full camp. No, right. I, I full three months away from yeah. boxing, living away from my family, living in Philadelphia. But I'd done boxing training every other day. So I, I stayed sharp, stayed in shape. And being, doing pretend punching was actually quite therapeutic. It was a bit away from really getting punched in the face. But 
that just alarmed, but I went off the radar to everyone, and, and I think it made Eddie really happy because after the cleverly two fight, Eddie just wanted to. He didn't want to see me ever again. <laughs> he just didn't stop winching. That's funny how things work out, and it? <laughs> yeah, it's mad. But then when I came back, that's where I always say he stood by me because I remember phoning him when I was on my way back with the finishing. He said, "I finished Creed. I need a fight." He said, "Tone, I've got nothing for you." Yeah, I said to him, "Listen, lad, I haven't been in the, in the gym training probably for three months." I said, "I want a fight." He said, okay, sound, not a problem. He got me out in May, I think it was, uh, on an undercard of Josh Warrington in Leeds. I think, I can look at, no, actually, it was, I think the first fight back was Ivinka Bakkerin in Liverpool. Yeah, that was after Cleverly, correct, yeah, and then yeah. you boxed in Leeds. Yeah. Ivinka Bakkerin, yeah. uh, a 10-round fight. I actually got a chest infection the week of the fight, and I was on antibiotics. And I could have done Ivinka Bakkerin in two rounds, but I was petrified of gassing. <laughs> so I remember just jabbing the head off him, keeping him at pace and just boxing the head off him. And then in the 10th round, I came out and just went to the coach. I'm opening up now because I'm obviously, it doesn't matter if I get tired. It's the last round. And I stopped him in the last round just pretty easily. Then I fought Keila Coolis on a... Uh, Warrington. Yeah. On a, on a Josh Warrington build. He was a South Pod. He just defeated uh, Kalengan, if I'm right in thinking. I remember Eddie. So I said, why are you sticking me in with him? Uh, he's just... Be- Kalinga or Kalunga, whatever his name was. Uh, I guess around that sort of time would have been the time. I've, I've, we've spoke about the story off camera. I've not really heard it too much on camera about when you did get a phone call about the Creed film. I think it was after an Everton game, right? Everton had been pumped off uh, Chelsea 6. Diego Costa scored a hat-trick. Using, using a chippy. A fella calls me up while I was on my way to the Indian uh, to get my final takeaway before Cleverly rematch. So I had 14 weeks to go. There was no takeaways allowed in the side, the 14-week schedule. So, uh, yeah, I got this call and just thought, this is a wind-up. And in the end, if, thankfully it worked out, it wasn't a wind-up. Uh, I just thought it was Leon Osborne winding me up. It was <laughs> Ross Barkley who, who made the contact, to be honest. When my phone and Ross up saying, I swear to God, lad, you better not be winding me up. <laughs> this has got Leon Osborne written all over it, because Ozzy's usually the wind-up in our dressing room. It wasn't a wind-up. Well, that's some assist from uh, Ross Barkley. Fair play. <laughs> um, it's a crazy story. So you've beat Masternak now. Like you say, you've then finished the, the Creed film. Mm-hmm. You won a world title shot next. You've been promised a world title yeah. shot next. They when- called me first, to be honest. Eddie phoned me instead of had a call off uh, Al Heyman's people, the PBC. Uh, this mad, this story doesn't get out. And he said, uh, do you want to fight Bearbit Shumanov for the WBA regular okay, yeah. cruiserweight title? And I said, do us a favour, mate. I said, I've got belts from Primark worth more than that. <laughs> And he just went to me... Because Lebed- Lebedev was the super champion. Yes. Yeah. He said to me, Tony, it's a world title. I said, no, it's not. Don't call it that again. I said, I'm not fighting for that, Ed. Fuck off. <laughs> he said, it'll be good money and it'll be in Vegas probably. And I went, Ed, I'm not fighting for that belt. It's pointless. That got put to the side. A few more weeks passed and uh, he phoned me up and he said, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, okay, well, what's the good news? He said, I've got you the WBC world title fight. I said, okay, well, there can't possibly be bad news. He said to me, everyone's telling me, I don't know. He said, but you've got to face someone called Alunga Macabre. And I said, you must be fucking joking. <laughs> I said, does it have to be him? He said, can we put it against someone else and then we'll face him in the in the first defence? And he went, no, the WB said it's got to be him. He's been waiting for two years for his shot at Gregory Draws. Gregory Draws has now got a supposed injury that's going to be for two years. So, he, so he was made champion in recess. So he was yeah. made, well, he, he, he had to mark because he didn't get made champion in recess on the Maccabi. He should have been made champion in recess. Or he, well, sorry, Gary Josh was champion yeah. in recess. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant. Well, Alunga Maccabi should have been, in my opinion, in stays as champion because he'd been waiting for the shot yeah. for two years. He defeated everyone, everyone. before. Yeah. He'd smashed everyone. 
and they just went, right, you're going to fight Bellator for the vacant title. Fuck's sake. So the, the fight itself was announced on April 29th, which is a month before the fight. Yeah. I mean, to have it at Goodison Park, we spoke about your affinity with Everton, uh, dream venue. There was a lot of hurdles to overcome in that, you know, licensing, planning applications. Yeah. One man in a fight there. There's never been a fight after. And there never will be again either. No. Nope. So, um, but one man who was integral to that, apart from Eddie and Frank, obviously, was um, the late, great Mr. Bill Camerot, who unfortunately passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, obviously saw a social media post from yourself, very close to him. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you can share that moment with him. We'll come on to, you know, you winning the fight, but how integral was Bill throughout the whole build-up to the fight? It wouldn't have happened without him. So we'd come across this path four years before, and at the time, the, the big shareholder at the club was a man called uh, Robert Hill. Robert Hill was just former owner of Planet Hollywood. I remember having dinner with Robert and, and the chairman. Uh, and I'm saying to him, he said, Son's gonna box good, he's gonna box me, son's gonna box good as a back on the actual chairman used to call me son, listen, it's gonna be okay, you're gonna do it. And then Robert Hill went, he's not. And I went, Okie doke, and he just went, Do you know how much I pay for that picture here? I pay a million pounds for that grass here, Robert Hill said. Yeah, I'm not sticking a ring on that pitch. And I well, my plan was to do it in May when there's no grass on the pitch or if it is grass on the pitch it's all dead and he was just adamant it weren't happening for me Robert Hill uh, so when Robert Hill moved on for Fahad Mishiri and, and his, his own ship went there was a, there was a small window and uh, Fahad didn't have really anything to do with it then but it was down to the chairman and uh, I said chairman chairman I've got a window and I, I remember when Eddie's told me it was going to be along the Macabre and we, this was six weeks before I said can we get it done? Make sure for the meeting. I'll spoke to the chairman. Chairman said, "I'll get it done. Don't worry, son. We'll get it done." The pitch was already booked, so we had to cancel all bookings because people wanted to play on on the Goodison yep. Park when the season finished and stuff. When he said, "Don't worry, I'll get round it. I'll work it out." We had a meeting with Alan Bowen, who's the head of the ground staff and stuff like that. And basically, I wanted to put some a massive, huge event on when they should all be on all these. So you can imagine he didn't want to do it. And uh, the chairman was instrumental, mate. Without him, it would never have happened. And I can't, you know, thank him enough. He knows what I thought of him and love him and miss him. And it's just sad, mate. But yeah, he, without him, it would never have happened. Yeah, and he, he was the driving factor and force behind it. He was there with me that night. I spoke to his, uh, his secretary a couple of days ago. And he said, I'll never forget Bill jumping up and down on that seat. Just And then the ring, ring apron as well. Yeah. It's a good, great shot of him. Yeah, yeah. It's me and... Yeah, he was just a brilliant person, mate. He was he was a brilliant person. Always there to give me advice. When I got the call for Creed, he was the first person I called. Uh, he's the first person I showed the contract to, the script to. And I remember him saying, take it, son. It's a good thing to do. And I was like, I know, Jim, but I just don't know if I can do it. And he said, no, don't worry about it. And he phoned me back two hours later. He said, you should take it. It's a, it's a fair bit of money, that, son. He said, that's a good one. <laughs> and then he looked at the, he looked, he read the script. And he phoned me back to us, he meant, hey, son, he said, this is not a small part, you know. He said, you're the villain. He said, you're the main one. I said, the no chairman, I was telling you that two hours ago. <laughs> he said to me, I can't believe it, you're going to be like the real bad guy in the movie. He said, this is a brilliant role. He said, do I need to get you some acting lessons or stuff like that? I said, no chairman, they're only asking me to play a boxer, they're not asking me to play a surgeon. <laughs> so he just laughed and we'd always have conversations on the phone, I mean. And just we just talk for hours and hours uh, about various things. Obviously, a lot was it about about Everton. He'd always be, you know, plugging me for see how the boxing's going, see how the kids are, the family are, uh, and we just have conversations all the time. But yeah, it's 
sad, sad, mate, that he's no longer here, but I'll never forget the things you've done for me and the things you've done for my family. This is your official quote from the press release when the fight was announced, and it's no surprise the first person you thank is Bill Camright. So you said, I'm over the moon to get this opportunity. Bill Camright and Eddie Hearn have got this done. I can't thank them enough. They're both behind me 100%, and I'm looking forward to getting this all underway. I've been training for four weeks now, and this is my defining night of my career. The experience has been passed. I've done it all. British, Commonwealth, European. I've beaten uh, fringe world contenders, and now I'm ready to conquer the world. I was born to lift that belt on May the 29th. I've achieved my dream just by getting this fight on, and I know I'm going to win. I won't be defeated at Goodison Park. This is the greatest stadium in the world. This is my night. So, probably haven't heard that for a while. Um, I don't know if you wrote that because I know some of these PR guys <laughs> probably got a bit of Anthony Lever over it as well. Yeah, it's it's word for word the something I'd say. So yeah, if it was Winkle, thank you very much. But he probably phoned me and asked me what. But the first person I always thank is the chairman. Uh, I've got so much to thank him for, and I say, and Eddie, I believe in being loyal to people who are loyal to you. Uh, Did you have the handshake agreement with Eddie? We've we've seen that from a few. You know, it's not necessarily pen to paper but it's it's trust it's it's faith it's yeah i never ever signed a contract with him i don't believe i needed to the only time he's had me signing contracts is now that i'm doing on fucking tv <laughs> so he makes sure i'm easy he wouldn't, he wouldn't work with me now if i didn't sign it which is finally hard to believe when i was worth something and worth a few quid and, and could crazy. have affected things that's crazy especially when al Heyman's sniffing around about yeah. a shimanoff fight you know they could have easily have gone another way but you know what once i'd won the world title we had a conversation our first conversation we ever met was in Nando's in Sheffield. And he, he said to me, if I'm not doing something for you, I'm happy for you to go. And if you're not doing enough for me, I, I'll let you go. I said, I'm happy to, because after that being burned by Frank Warren, I've been through court situations with him. I didn't trust promoters. Yeah, you I can't get more transparent him. than that. No, yeah. and that's what we just shook hands yeah. and it went from there. So he never asked me to sign a contract. He hinted at it once I'd won the world title. But I said, I gave you my word, didn't I? I said, I said to you, I've come in this game, I'm not going to work with another promoter. And he knows the offers I got. Yeah. Uh, when I was world champion, I had a multi-million pound offer come in for one fight with David A. And the the deal on the table was Eddie Ains not involved. And they knew people outside I didn't have a contract with Eddie Ains. Yeah. And they couldn't believe at that moment in time, the high, the most I'd ever been paid for a fight was $300,000. And they were offering me £1.6 million. Wow. And wow. said to me, and said, you have not got a contract with Eddie, and why are you not taking this money? Yeah. Like, you could not earn this money anywhere else. And then I phoned Eddie, and Eddie's words to me was, take it. He said, I can't offer you that money. Wow. I said, I'm not taking it. I said, because now I know he wants to fight me, and he's going to work with you. He was on the yeah. he was on the road. I'd, I'd, I'd hate by that point. I knew he wanted yeah. me then because I was a big name. So, yeah, it was just... Uh, it was just about being loyal and being patient. And I say, by being loyal and being... It all worked out at the end. So, four weeks' notice for the fight, not long at all. You've obviously been working in the background. I was. I was working for six weeks before, yeah. so I had ten weeks. Yeah. But I got the injury with two weeks to go. Yeah, we're going to touch on that. I spoke to Dave Colwell uh, a couple of days ago just to get a little bit of insight and stuff. And that's not particularly well known. You mentioned it in the post-fight press conference. Yeah. But how bad was that? It was um, some cartilage coming away from your rib, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it detached me from rib off my body, and it was. I was in a lot of pain. Didn't spar for two weeks, building up to the fight. It was a disaster. If it, if if that fight would have been scheduled for anywhere else, I would never have gone ahead with it. But the fact that it was the very smallest of windows at Goodison, yeah. I think Dave appreciated that. Yeah, you obviously knew it. The stars aligned for this moment to happen. There was no way you could have pulled out. He didn't like it. Dave didn't like it. I was so every morning. 
so whereas I'd usually been Sheffield Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I was now driving back and forth to Sheffield for three weeks straight before the fight. Every day, because every morning I was going over to a, a hyperbaric unit in Murrayfield Hospital over the water, and I was going to sleep in a hyperbaric in a hyperbaric unit for I think it was two hours every day mm -hmm. to try and recover my body at twice wow. the speed. Uh, and uh, done great. He's like my uncle Dave Alcock, and he's the one who put me through it on the hyperbaric unit. Uh, I think you go five thousand feet below sea yeah. level, and you're breathing hundred percent oxygen. And uh, I love me. Always looked out for me, and I ended up back there for the after that fight. So for the for the my last four out of my last five fights, I was in the hyperbaric unit every before every fight because I kept getting injuries. Who did you spar? Um, what did Camacho was a, a recurring sparring partner for yours for, for the couple of fights before a lunga would always use Waddy for the first few weeks right to get me sharp me range get me yeah. sharpen up and mate I've took a few items off Waddy Camacho to be fair in the first few weeks of camp he's given me a good pace there a few times and I've paid him for actually beating me up because Dave well, Dave couldn't remember who you spar for for Macabu so I wondered if uh, well, for the one who'd done the Macabu injury I actually don't think it was from sparring it was from training it popped uh, I forget how it was it might have been the kid called Vidal we had a kid called Vidal in uh, who was a technically a very good kid and I done my ribs against Hay uh, Michael Lowell uh, cracked my ribs against Hay before the fight uh, is that the same rib then? yeah yeah wow and then the person who hurt me before the Usyk fight who was it? I forget Uh Ty Mitchell. Ty Mitchell. Yeah. Lifted Mitchell's yep. lad. Yep. Uh, he's done me before that fight. So it was what it was. I just kept getting injured before fighting. It, it's a sign. Listen, yeah. your body's tough enough. You're still it's it's natural, I guess, right? Yeah. With age, yeah. time, yeah. and just like, listen, you've done enough. Now that's it. Them hyperbolic units and chambers were, were, were came in very fortunate for me. And it just it worked out in the end, but it was so different. There was dark times, mate. There really was. Because when I kept getting injuries and I'm, you're going back to the hotel, you know, in the Holiday Express, it just made me fucking iPad in the microwave. It was it was long and lonely, horrible, dark place to be in. Fight week comes around. Was you a fighter that would typically stay at home during fight weeks if the fight was obviously in your local surrounding area, or would you stay in the fight hotel away from family? Yeah, no fight week. I would. I, it depended on where it was. I always preferred fighting in London. If I'm being totally honest, I loved the O2. It's my favourite place. The facilities at the hotel and just I had stay in the the Riverside Canary mm -hmm. Canary Plaza. Oh, yeah. uh, John Castellanos Hotel, the best hotel in Britain, I think. It's just beautiful. Just just so calm and such a calm and place, relaxing. I loved it. The Riverside Plaza. Uh I loved just walking down, going in the underground shopping place, walking up and down, just not buying anything, just looking no, around. Look. Just having a look, having a walk across the front of the Canary Wharf. Uh that was my favourite place, but yeah, I wouldn't. I'd never like be at home. Uh, I'd just start getting ready, and camp would always, it would always die down, and then I would train on nights from Monday to Wednesday to get my body accustomed to start punching in the night again. Yeah, it was just I had I was so stringent and diligent with the way I planned and prepared things. It's mad because I look at how fights prepare now, and I just don't see the same amount of dedication and sacrifice in their game. I just don't see it. But then. They're far better athletes than me, so they maybe they might not have to be as dedicated and as stringent as I was, but I left nothing to chance. I prepared perfectly, the best I could, every single time. And I knew I had to do that because I just wasn't as good as them. Yeah, sure. The press conference against Macabu. No. Packed top table, the full undercard, got round to you, and you didn't actually say much. 
to be fair. I guess because you had so much build-up. There was a lot of media in the build-up yeah. to the fight. I guess by the time the Thursday comes around, it's nothing else to talk about, right? You've done everything. I had so much respect for him. Uh, I'd watched the, the destruction he'd done. Uh, the Makunu fight was the one that stuck out to me, the Thabasio Makunu. Mm -hmm. Makunu's a good fighter. Very good. Yeah. To be fair. Uh, and I just respected along the Macabre. I knew how good he was. Uh, the Ty Field knockout win. Ty Field's a big fucking lump and he just walloped him, put him out. Uh, so yeah, it's he's someone I respected. He's someone I didn't need to trash talk or get on much. I think the only encounter I had was with Bacoli, his brother. Uh, in the hotel, in the Hilton Hotel, in the, in the thingy out in the lobby, yeah, he said something to me, and I said, "Why are you looking at me like you're gonna fucking do something?" And he went, "I'll do whatever I want." I said, "Well, fucking do it then, you stupid big dope." And he went, "Do you know who I am? I'm a heavyweight." And he said, "I'm a fucking heavyweight right now as well. I'll fucking put you out." And as I've stepped towards him, my men, my lads have just jumped in between. Said, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? And I said, I, "I just wasn't in the mood to be fucked. It was fight week. I, yeah. wasn't, I just, I just thought I'll fucking end you." Uh, and yeah, that was the only kind of altercation I really had. I, I have respect to McCauley and I still do. I respect McCauley, to be fair. I mean, I don't really know him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just that was the only altercation we really had all weekend. I was very respectful in talking. At all. My focus and goal was just to remain composed as well. Yeah. yeah. I had to not get emotionally invested in it because, you know, if I get emotionally invested in this, I'm going to get fucked. And my worst fear was, mate, if I lose this fight, Scott, I will never go back to Goodison Park again. You wouldn't be able to walk down the street, would you? No. You know, I've been with you walking down the street at Goodison Park and you get mobbed on a non-match day. Yeah. Imagine, on, yeah. Mate, on match day, mate, it's taken me 20 minutes to get from the car park to the gate, yeah. to the front of the ground. 20 minutes. And, and and I'm grateful and eternally grateful for that. But do you think I'm something? I'm not. Something that I, I've done, something that every person I'm walking past in that stadium can do. It's just you've got to be willing to put on line what I've put on the line. Anyone can do what I've done. You just are you willing to sacrifice and dedicate yourself as much as I have? And that's the problem that people have these days. They're not willing to go through the pain to, to gain the success. And, and that, you know, I, I don't class myself as special means. I just think I'm someone who's, who's, I've seen out my lifelong dream. I've lived my childhood dreams. And the only reason I've lived and seen them through is because I was insanely motivated and driven to want to be the best I could possibly be. And just not everyone gets that. And that's what I struggle dealing with. The day before the fight, the weigh-in, um, Ricky Burns boxed and become a three-weight world, world champion, champion against yes. De Rocco. That was a Saturday. Your fight was a Sunday. Did you watch that by any chance? I know you're a boxing fan as well. Uh, yes, I did because I was in the hotel. So yeah, I watched that. was made up from sent him a text. Brilliant. Rick, well done. Michelle De Rocco, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Stopped him. So yeah. I knew Michelle De Rocco. I was actually at an Olympic training camp with him. There the fight comes around. You open up. Well, not open up. You was the underdog the whole way through. And I think even on the fight day... The odds come in a little bit. I managed to back you at five to one for the knockout. I think it was eleven, uh, nine to two. I think, but a few of your mates must have had a, a nibble on that. Oh, listen, everyone was putting it on. I mean, I, I told everyone I'm going to win. I can't be so. I'm just going to be honest. I didn't think, you know, it's going to be definitely going to be a knockout, and I wasn't. I, I was just. Uh, by the way, I studied him and knew I had to get rid of him before six rounds. I know there's a good chance. I gave myself. 60-40 chance of getting rid of him in the first six rounds but I knew he only gets stronger as the fights go on by studying him I realised he does like to start slow did you have any fight day superstitions before because we touched on it a minute ago you saying you know you watched the Ricky Burns fight in your hotel in a fight week there's a lot of dead time it's a lot of obligations don't get me yeah. wrong but there is a lot of time so day of the fight have you got anything that you you'd go out and do a team walk or anything or I always walk I always do a good good call I'll eat walk eat 
go shopping, go to a shop, walk around, do some normal things, probably usually buy a few little bits, go back to the hotel, sleep, and then go. And you set off and you arrived at the stadium. It's a great shot of you walking down the tunnel, headphones on, massive backpack. You embrace Frank Smith on arrival. You had the headphones on, but I'm sure you could you could hear the fans in the background. Uh, I mean, I could hear them, but it was mad because I, I got there at a reasonable hour, but David Price, had, I think, was just boxing at the time I arrived, and I didn't see it. I just caught the end of it. Which would have been scheduled that way because Dave Caldwell was in Price's corner and yeah. wanted the time in between. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. So I arrived there hours and hours before they should have actually been there. Is that just to embrace it and take it all in? I just wanted to see it, yeah. yeah. I wanted to see it with people in there. I'd been the day before and met Frank there just to have a look and see what it looked like. Yep. And then when I walked in there and seen the lights thing, you know, and stuff, it was just, it was amazing. You went for a little walk to take it all in and you heard a cry of, Dad, Dad. You turn around and your eldest is there. Yeah. I know you spoke about this before, but I wanted to get your, your sort of additional insight. You wasn't one really for having the kids at the fights. But this time, obviously a bit different because it was a complete one-off. What did that moment do when you saw your son in the stadium before broke the fight? Broke my heart. Yeah, broke my heart. And I'd be in tears. I spoke to Dave Caldwell, like I said, a couple of days ago. He said, when you come back in from yeah. that walk, you come back in and you didn't break down, but you was visibly shook and you went to the floor almost. Yeah. He said, what's up, what's up? Something's happened, what's up? He said he looked at you and the teardrop fell from your eye to the floor. No. That was the first time ever he's seen you cry. It was yeah. at, literally two hours before your world title fight. Yep. It was there. Uh, I was just, I went to walk around and I told me stupid bird. Don't have me, don't let me see me kids. I want them to come and I want them to see it because I want them to be there when it witnesses it. But I don't want them to, I don't want to see him. Like I'm, when I'm in boxing, I'm in, I can be horrible. Like mm -hmm. Scott, I've been... I've done some bad things and I've done some horrible shit in my life, mm. but me kids don't see that side of me. Mm. And then when I'm in boxing, when I'm in a boxing environment, even when I'm in it now, like I could set off a fight with any bastard now. I could, I can mate, I can just let go. I've got to switch that conflict, but me kids have never seen that switch. And me kids have never seen any kind of bad side of me. She has. She's seen me fight. She's seen me have murder. She's seen me have trouble on the streets. She's seen, witnessed all that shit. She knows we've grown up together. But my kids don't say, and I never believed he should. And I've always told them, that, listen, bad things happen at boxing events. People do really get hurt. And I always knew that and I know what I've signed up for. So when I heard his little voice and, and, and I thought, it couldn't possibly, am I told that I cannot see him at the fight? I know I want him to be there and I'll see him after the fight and we'll celebrate together. But I don't want to really know he's there. And I actually forgot he was there. <laughs> I forgot he was coming. So to hear that was a massive shot. When I heard his voice saying, dad, dad, and I thought, I know that voice. And I didn't turn around for the first few times. And I thought, he said, Dad, it's me. And I turned around and looked at him and didn't even say nothing to so just walk past him. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting. Dave says, then it's time to wrap up. So, you know, from being quite emotional, yeah. two hours before you fight, you obviously yeah. got to get switched on. Dave said you, you had a very busy changing room. Yeah. Started limbering up on the pads and you was clearly off. Yeah. A couple of your mates who Dave confined in cleared the room out, basically. Yeah. Because, you know, I guess... I guess there was just so much going on. Yeah, there was. And that, that's it. I'm, I've got a switch in me. I think when the low blow went on, that's it then. It's just kill or be killed. I knew I could get hurt in this fight. That's the one thing I knew about McCarver. He's got the power to hurt me. And, and and it could happen at any time. And me wish, and, and I know if I'm going to lose here, I'm going to go out on a stretcher. And I know that I accept it. I will not stop getting up. You, you better put me on the floor and put me down because I'm going to keep fighting.
I'm not proud of that attitude. I'm not proud of that mentality. But that's just me. I think the last few combinations on the pads, I'd shook everything out, and I, and my mind was focused on the lung and Macabre. It's only until I walk up the steps, and then look out of the stadium. Just going to pause you there. Just before that, so there's a camera in your dressing room. We can obviously see this. Yeah. You go onto your knees and say a little prayer, and I believe it's for your old Rotunda coach Jimmy Albertino. You mentioned earlier as well. What did you for every fight? What did you seek in that moment? Because it was only twenty seconds or so. What did you? He's seek? the last person I always speak to before I walk to the ring, and I'll always speak to Jimmy. I mean, listen, I'll go. I don't really believe in much. I don't want to say religion because I'm trying to adapt and, and and look at new parts and stuff like that. And I've got respect for all religions, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's what Judaism, whatever. I've got respect for all of them. Uh, and I actually admire people for being being able to have the power to believe and, and stay strong like that. Where I've, I've witnessed so many things in my life and and, and encountered so many different things that I just I struggle to believe in certain things. But I always believe that the people who I've lost in my life are, are looking at me or, or watching me or can see me. And I always talk to Jimmy. I always said, you know, just let me perform to the best of my ability. I'm not saying let me win because you haven't got that power, but just let me perform to the best of your ability and let me and keep me safe. That's all as I asked for. And then tell him I'm thinking about him. Yeah, I hope you're proud. He was a fellow mad Evertonian like me. And you're probably sitting in this dressing room now watching me with a smile on your face. And uh, yeah, you know, that, that, that was the last person I'd speak to before I'd leave. You mentioned that you got up to the tunnel. Macabre had ring walked. Tony Bellew songs pumping out. You can hear it. Dave Colwell turns around to you and says, keep focused. I think he says something like, don't try and engage with the fans or something. Yeah, don't, don't, you know, fighting for the crowd, fighting for you. <laughs> that's a great, when the siren goes off and, and Zed Cars kicks in, it's a great um, shot of your, your ring walking. You pause yeah. and you just lose the plot and you turn around to Dave and say, sorry. <laughs> just have a good time. You've got to embrace that moment, haven't you? You had to. I'll never, ever forget that. I'm just stopping the skirt guards from walking saying, look at that. I've fucking dreamt about this. And you mouth the words unbelievable. Yeah, that was. Amazing. I just want to give a little shout out to uh, on that ring walk. We had big Neil Harding uh, on one side escorting you through the crowd. He'd done a great job as always. Yeah. And Michael Bruno Smith was on your right hand side. He unfortunately passed away uh, a yeah. couple of months back. Uh, was a great great member of the security team. Always had a smile on his face. And Bruno was brilliant, mate. I loved Bruno. He was just an absolute diamond of a guy. Uh, yeah, I really thought a lot of him, mate. And heartbreaking moments on him. Can only send condolences and my thoughts to his family and his kids because he was he was just a diamond of a fella, brilliant at his job as well. Very good, and he had to be because yeah, it, you know it was carnage because everyone wanted a piece of you as you ring walking, um, getting us through that Goodison Park on the on the turf and walking us through. And there was no instances; they kept everyone at bay. And and listen, that's the only time in the history of having football club Goodison Park's been drunk dry. There wasn't a single drink left in Goodison Park of any kind of calibre. He drank it completely dry. The Wimslow outside drank completely dry not a bevy left so yeah the fight itself uh, Macabre started slow as you as predicted as you mentioned earlier on you hit him with a, a good left hook um, which you didn't budge but then you backed him up uh, with some nice body work at the end of the towards the end of the first round I should say and then the whole thing changed you came out on a straight line yes and got punched in the air and did a pretty impressive backflip to be fair <laughs> I got a nine off all the judges at ringside <laughs> to be honest I'm told for me uh, gymnastic abilities uh did you break your nose? Yeah, he snapped my nose. Snapped my nose. I felt the crunch, mate. And then the blood was dark. You always know it. The, when the, it's how quick the blood drops. And then you, you usually hear it or feel the snap. But I felt it. And then the 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 blood is just dark. So when you... Obviously, I wear blue gloves to touch it. 
shit, you know it's dark. And you wore blue Grant gloves. Was Grant always your preferred tool of choice? Yes, 100%. Yeah. I think if you haven't got good hands on, you'd have a disadvantage. Don't get me wrong, I haven't felt the gloves these days, but uh, I felt the fly gloves, they're pretty dangerous. Uh, the Reyes are what they used to be, but are still great gloves. And yeah, there's, there's a few of them like that, but them Grants, they felt like little bricks. They really did. When you went down, Dave shouted, and this is a quote from Kerry Case, who was in the corner as well. He said, Dave said, you stupid bastard, as you hit the floor. I don't know if you ever know that, actually. Um, you know what he said? That's what he said as soon as you hit the deck. You come back into the corner. Dave says to you, you got greedy. You forgot about your defence. Despite that, you said to him, but I hurt him with a body shot. <laughs> you got greedy. You got greedy. That's what he used to say to me. Fucking hell. Of all the things to be called, I'm naturally a fat bastard anyway. <laughs> I don't need telling I got greedy. And you're telling him, oh, I hurt him with a body shot. Incredible. Dave's instructions at the end of that established the, the jab. Round two, a bit more cages start, but you maintain the distance. Bakabu's counter-punch and style did present opportunities. Yeah. There was a good little burst towards the end of the second. I guess that was to let him know that you're in this, despite the, the knockdown in the round previous. I'm not going to lie. I don't remember anything from the second round. I actually thought I knocked around the second round. I never knew the second round existed until I watched it back. Wow. That's a whole... That's that boxing, that's just, yeah, I was severely concussed, I didn't even. I walked back after that fight and literally thought I'd knocked him out in the second, second round. I don't, I have no recollection or memory of that second round. So I don't know what I'd done. I don't know what was going through my mind. I just, crazy. Dave's instructions at the end of the second were, be patient, don't be lean over your front foot. He's trying to get you to fall short and counter. Win the fight. Don't think about entertaining the people. Win the fight. You won that round because you were patient. That was Dave's instructions at the end of the second. Third round, we obviously know what happened. The moment you change your life, you achieve your dreams. I mean, it's breathtaking to, to watch it back and, and take the third round in. It was it was epic. You sense an opportunity and you, I guess you, in a way, you kind of went for broke, right? You, you had a sniff of it after getting dropped. I'm just talking out now as if in in the third person because and I remember getting dropped. I remember going back and talking in the corner. I don't remember round two, so it's gone in my mind, but I know my autopilot instincts will have been to consolidate and sit down on this round, move, box, move, box. Uh, if he gives you the stupid opportunity, take it, but don't get greedy. Don't, don't overcommit. And... And that's what will have got me through the second round. I remember getting off the stool for the third because I thought the third was the second. <laughs> so I remember getting it's off crazy. the stool for the third yeah. uh, and thinking, shit, I've only got three more rounds to get rid of you. And that's what I remember thinking. I've got to, I've got to, which I, I said, I just kept thinking, draw them in, draw them in. And, and he fell for it because my plan was to counter the counter. He's a counter puncher. If I can draw him in, he will make a fundamental mistake, and he done it. He gave me his chin first. His chin comes over his right hand, and I counter him with the Slip, left hook. Yeah, yeah. I slip and counter with the left hook because he comes into the corner. That is the beginning of the end for him. And along with McCobb, even when he gets hit hard, he doesn't usually react, and he never runs back. Because you nearly nailed it about 10 seconds before. Yeah. I just he, Once he ran back in a straight line, I knew you're in real bad danger here. I've shook your temple bad. And I kept chasing him, and I just couldn't catch him clean again, so I started going back down the stairs, some to the body, some to the head. Every time I hit him downstairs to the body, he reacted. He made the noise inside. That was a, that was a strategic move, the body, to, yes. to Makabu. Yes, because 
when you hurt someone to the body, it makes them super, super wary. With Makabu, he's got such a fat head. It's mad. He's got a big fucking head on him. And I'll hit anywhere. Like, I know. People think I'm either this great puncher. That is, I'm not I'm not saying I'm this big knockout Deontay Wilder puncher. I'm really, really heavy-handed and I'm pretty accurate. I'll hit you anywhere on the head and I know I'm going to hit you. Like, everyone thinks you've got to hit someone on the chin. I would, when I fought David Hay, I wasn't even aiming for his chin. I was aiming for his temple. David Hay has got an absolutely cast-iron jaw. David Hay's never been knocked out and rendered unconscious on the floor. He gets dropped all the time. He's been dropped multiple times, yeah. but he gets dropped by getting hit on the temple. I was aiming for his temple in the fight. It, it's things like that. If you study fights and you're diligent and you pay enough attention, you'll wear out and see them things. With Makabu, I knew I just had to hit you hard, really hard, multiple times. And I was hoping to discourage him. Uh, the body shots will, will make him think twice about attacking. The head shots will discourage him to the point of where he's going to only think about defence. I wants to take all his offence away from him. And Lunga McCarby was brilliant on the front foot. He's useless on the back foot. And you backed him up against the ropes. And that's how I got him. At the trade-up and it was lights out. Yeah. You dropped to your knees. Dave Colwell burst in the ring. The place just went absolutely mental. You're talking about you don't remember the second round at all. In that moment of winning the world title yeah. is it a blur or is it can you recall it like I just remember feeling ultimate relief yeah you're off onto my knees and just sobbing and with relief because I've been telling people all these years since I was 15 years old I'm going to be a world champion I'm going to be a WBC world champion I'm going to win in a Goodison Park and everyone just called me a bullshitter I've been labelled a bullshit since I was 15 by everyone who'd listened to me it's full of shit him chat shit chat shit and well, that was the moment you proved them wrong that's the moment I've no one can ever call me a bullshit because there's nothing I've said I'm going to do that I haven't done. It's quite a scary moment. Obviously, McCarvey was a, a brutal knockout. Eddie comes in. I think it was Eddie, to be fair, who sort of said, you know, it was a ring invasion. The McDonald twins were in there jumping about all over the place. There was, you know, a couple of minutes, like we say, McCarvey then did get to his feet. You embraced for quite a while. Yeah. What was you saying to him at that stage? I just told him that your time's going to come. And I, I did. Knew, yeah. I told him his time will come 100%. Uh, it's just my night. My nothing would, would deny you. Denied me yeah. tonight. No matter what he done, no matter what game plan he took out, no matter what tactics he put in place, it wasn't going to stop me. Nothing could have stopped me, mate. And that's just, it's just my moments. You know, I, I believe we're all destined to have our moments in life. And that was my moment. That's my defining glory moment in my life. And, and nothing will ever get close to it ever again. What did it feel when that belt was placed over your shoulder, around your waist? You got Michael Buffer as well, which yeah. just makes the Hollywood angle even more real. Yeah, it, it was surreal. I'll say that's the best way of saying it. I mean, I dreamed about it, I'd envisioned it, I'd seen it in my dreams, and but then it's always been a dream. Uh, and then when you go to, and do a movie, Creed, you've got two WBC belts over each shoulder, and you, you know you're this heavyweight champion of the world and the best fighter on the planet. It kind of go well. Is this where it's really going to end for me? It makes you question yourself. And then when you really done it. And in front of all the cameras, and you've been a world champion, especially with people in the background, they're attacking me over the years, telling me I was never going to be a world champion. It all came out in the end in that last interview that I'd done, you know. But yeah. a few people straight told people a few <laughs> untruths and, and told them that Tony Bell, you as a world champion, that can never, ever be taken away from me. I've been a, a British Commonwealth European and world champion, and, and them things will stay with me forever. We soaked it up in the ring afterwards. You was the conductor, the Everton songs, <laughs> uh, which was great to see. What did you do after the fight to celebrate? You obviously went back to the changing room, done all your photos. You mentioned Barry Hearn come in and said, I never thought this moment was going to happen. Yeah. 
You had, a, I think, Graham Stewart come in your change room, a few of the old players. Yeah. Snods, Graham Stewart, all on this now. Tilton yeah. Distant, yeah. Yeah, my friends. Yeah. Did you get on it? It must be weird after a fight because you're so mentally yeah, drained. I just don't really. I'm not a drinker, really. I don't yeah. taste the alcohol. I do drink. I'm not going to say I don't drink because I do, but I just don't like the taste. Uh, I'd, I'd take a pint of lemonade over a pint of, of, of beer any day of the week, but it's just, just what you do. You just, I, mean, I just I remember going home on the Sunday. Well, it was now obviously the Monday and just and saying, I've done it. Like, what, what's really left to do? And then I got a little tiny bit of sleep. Uh, woke up Monday morning. Papers at my front door. The gloves are on me there on the on the kitchen top. And then yeah, she says to me, You've done it now. That there's nothing left for you to do. What you know, you you're retired now, what are you gonna do? And I was like, Gail, if you only knew we're so far away from financial security, <laughs> you not fucking imagine. I'm pretty old school to be honest, am I? Uh, I don't believe me, Mr. should have to worry about financial difficulties. She's difficulty, she's got enough on her plate looking after me, me yeah. four kids. So I take the burden. I look after the house. I put things in place. That's not her field. That's not her job. And yet, that's what I've done. And I just said to her, girl, we're so far away. I said, but what our promise is now, I'm coming towards the end. I said, and it'll all be about financially, by becoming financially secure from here on in. I'll, I'll defend this belt. And then it'll be money. And then straight away, I knew the target was David Amy's. I asked Darren Barker in the first episode and Crawler in the second episode, after you won the world title, did a little bit of your drive, your motivation park because you had cracked it? Or was it more now, there's so much more I can achieve? No, not for me. If anything, my worst fear then hits home. I don't want to be that world champion who loses it in his first defence. I don't want to be in that list. I don't want to be the, another Glam McCauley. I don't want to be in that club. Yeah, yeah. That, that motivated me massively. Yeah. But then also what most of me is I knew I had to financially secure our future. If I yeah. lose this world title to BJ fucking Flores. Gosh, yeah. Mate, we're finished. And, and also, bear in mind, BJ Flores, BJ Flores on his third world title attempt. He knows it's his last fight, last chance at a world title. He hates me. He despises me. He's been chasing me for years. He's been putting it out there. I'm just a blown up light heavyweight. He probably now looks, this is the best chance I've got to win a world title. Previously, I think he beat to Australia. Yep. He stayed green. Yep. And, uh, and he faced everyone else. So, I agree you. Yeah. I think he got done by Shumanov as well. Uh, so, yeah, he, he, you know, he'd been unfortunate, but. I just knew, mate. I was, I was now. If anything, this, this propelled me. This went over the lung of McCarthy. I just, I was in a different level and a different mindset, level. like you say, yeah, more financially mindset. driven. Yeah, I, I was, I was stupid the way I approached the fight. The only time in my career, I'd say, no, the second time I crashed weight. Stupid. I had a lot of shit going on in my personal life once again. Mm -hmm. uh, me, me wife's mum had been in a coma for about a month, and she woke up two days before the fight. Wow. And I've got to get things done, but I, I just was so engrossed with my family as always and stuff. And I was taking myself away to camp with Coldwell uh, and just done the weight wrong. It was stupid. And then I also ate my left hand as well. We spoke about the fights that come after that, so we don't need to touch on that part of your career. Where does the famous green and gold belt live in Tony Belly's house? Uh, I'm just having a me office done at the minute, and it's got a nice cabinet in my office with lighting in the camp in the, in the thing. Uh, and the other belts will be going in there as well. You know, the intercontinental belts I've got. Uh, British Commonwealth, European, British Commonwealth, European. Yeah, them belts will be going in there as well. Some career, mate. I just need to, to get a British title. I'm trying to buy a British just title. Just mate. Well. I really appreciate your time. It's gone over um, schedule, but I appreciate your time. Goodison Park, like we said earlier on, there will only be one fight there. Um, coming well, to two. Well, yeah. Pretty Ricky Conn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. How could I forget that? 
coming to a, the, the end of its history yeah. later this year, um, being a Spurs fan and, and going through that myself, it, you know, it's quite an emotional time. Is it? Um, You've experienced it. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm still, I'm still sort of cut up over it. To be fair, I don't think it'll ever be the same. But in order for your club to progress, you've got to um, look at the bigger picture. Uh, you're moving into a fifty-three thousand seater capacity stadium at Bramley Moor Dock. Excited? Yes, I'm going to go and sort my season tickets out uh, as soon as I get back from Monaco. Uh, are they open that up now? You can pick and stuff. You, you can pick. Yeah, but yeah. I just don't know what I want. And how many of my kids are going to really? pay attention and because I'm so busy with the zone Eddie puts on so many fucking shows uh, I'm going to miss a few but I've got to get it sorted out uh, I haven't had a season ticket for many years because of work commitments and the chairman used to kick off and go nuts don't you dare I, I, you go where I want you to sit here I want you to do it and I'd just be like and I, I'd rather just go sit with the fans that's why I, I attend a lot more away games yep. because I just like sitting with fans I'm, I'm being the yourself. same as them they often pick you out Looking pretty dejected when you're getting turned over. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's not a lie, mate. That's definitely the truth. But uh, it, it's character building for me, kids. <laughs> I think it's a good trait. What happens to Goodison? Is it being transformed? It's going to be transformed. Yeah, no, not flat. It, it's going to be a it's going to be a big community based thing. But nice. I don't know. But you know, they'd be better asking the club. I mean, yeah, they they know my stance. I'll always help them with anything I possibly can, and I'll do everything I possibly can for the kids in the area, just helping them. But the most important thing is, whatever happens to it, it's if it comes down and gets sucked down, I want the kids to be part of taking it down or putting it in or just doing whatever happens with it. I want the, the area and the community to be part of it. Yeah. Because everyone should remember, like I, I wanted so many more scousers to be on part on the site of Bramley Mordock. Yeah. Scousers should be building that stadium because I want to turn up and go, we help build this. This is ours. This is us. We've done this. And, and I'm a big, big thing for, you know, involved in the communities and stuff like that so fingers crossed and fingers crossed another Evertonian Pete McGrown will go on to headline in years to come you never know you never know we obviously did that, did that nice bit of content with your, yourselves looking out over at the site um, Tony Belly thank you so much over the last hour and 15 minutes going over your finest moment a dream well and truly achieved my friend thanks for your time great to look back and hear little stories that we haven't heard before really appreciate it mate thank you thank you very much for having me and keep listening guys 